0: While it can be, compromise is not always sinister. If a politician is going to be successful, he's going to have convictions, but he's going to be able to discern that there's some things that he can compromise with others on in order to be effective in his work. I would guess that there's some compromise that goes on at your vocation. Not everything goes your way. I would even surmise that if you're married, there had better be a little bit of compromise that goes on if it's going to be successful and you're going to remain married. Even close friendships have compromise within them. It's not always your way or the highway. In our church life, we even have doctrines, doctrines that are comprised of what's orthodox, We can't move on those. They define what Christianity is. And then there's other doctrines that we hold to that define who we are as a church that differentiate us perhaps from other churches that are orthodox in their Christianity. But then there's doctrines that we have even among ourselves in this church that we might differ on and we're still Christians and we're still faithful to the Lord. There's compromise on some of those things. On doctrinal things even. So compromise is not always a dirty word, but it certainly can be. While some compromise can be constructive, I think we know, and we could probably list a number of examples of where compromise could be corruptive. From its beginning, the Church of Jesus Christ has been faced with the threat of a kind of compromise with the surrounding and unbelieving culture that threatens not only its vibrancy but actually threatens its existence and that's been true from the very beginning we'll see it today in this text of a church in the first century you can read through church history and see how compromise with the culture has always been a war the church has been facing and how do we make the decision on on how we'll live in the present world and and not be unnecessarily antagonistic to it but also preserve what we know to be true and not let it be deluded by what the world wants us to think and believe. That's a challenge for us. We also know that the quest for cultural affirmation, the quest for cultural tolerance of our Christianity can move us to compromise because of convenience and a kind of compromise that we just want to exist can then lead to redefining our faith altogether and we see examples of that in our world and cultural compromise is what is actually threatening the very existence and sustaining of the church in Pergamum if Ephesus was the loveless church and Smyrna was the suffering church Pergamum is the compromised church the ancient church in Pergamum addressed here in Revelation 2, 12 to 17 is a church that's tripping over the pitfall of cultural compromise. And Jesus is directly confronting them. And the confrontation that you read about here is not, not one where he's, he's saying, you know, you, you're off just a little bit and I need you to get back on track. No, you're off so much so that if you keep down that track... I'm coming and I'm coming in judgment against you. We we all know this to be true. You can turn the dial just a little bit and just be a little off, but let let yourself be off for long enough and how far off do you end after a few years? You're way off track. That's what he's saying. There's a little bit of compromise here and you keep on that compromise and when I come back, you'll likely not even be Christian. And you'll find judgment. That's how serious this is. That's how serious it is. So we don't want to be that kind of congregation. And he's written this here so that we wouldn't be this kind of congregation that gives into cultural compromise to such a degree that it begins to redefine who we are as Christians. So how is it that a Christian congregation can avoid the pitfall of cultural compromise? That's what we want to look at. It's not hard to see it, we'll, we'll walk through it together as we have through all of these. We're going to look at a number of principles, six different principles in avoiding the pitfall of cultural compromise. That's the, the aim of our time this morning. Six different principles in avoiding the pitfall of cultural compromise. The first one is found in verse 12. The first principle in avoiding the pitfall of cultural compromise is keep the ultimate judge in mind. You want to avoid compromise? Keep the ultimate judge in mind. Now, compromise is always this battle between someone's affirmation. It is. That's what leads us to compromise. We're weighing the affirmation of multiple people and we'll take a little here and a little here and we'll bring them together and meld them together so we get the affirmation of both of them because we fear the judgment of both sides or many sides and we don't want their condemnation we want their affirmation but if you want to avoid the kind of compromise that's going to corrupt christianity there's only one judge to keep in mind and that's the ultimate judge and that's where Christ begins in this letter, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Once again, an angel is the agent dispatched from the Lord to deliver a specific message along with the whole book of Revelation to the ancient city, the ancient church in the city of Pergamum. Now, Pergamum, it's modern-day Bergama in Turkey. It had a long, long and very rich history of which I'm not going to go through all of it, but I, I would encourage you, if you can look it up, you can read through the rich history of the city of Pergamum. It actually became an ally of the Romans' in the third century BC, and as that Roman ally, this city of Pergamum became the capital city of the entire region of Asia Minor. Its first century population is estimated to be somewhere between 120 and 200,000, which again, in the ancient world, that's a very significant population. It was the first city in all of Asia Minor to have a temple devoted to the worship of the Roman Caesar. In 29 BC, a temple was erected in honor of Augustus and the goddess Roma. It became one of the foremost cities advocating what became known as the cult of the Caesar, the worship of the Caesar, the worship of the emperor. My Greek professor, Robert Thomas, who's written a two-volume commentary on the book of Revelation, has said, this about that he said a second temple in addition to the one given to augustus a second temple for emperor worship was added during the reign of trajan now put that in some perspective we think that john is writing under the reign of domitian and after domitian this would be the end of domitian's reign and after domitian came one other ruler just a couple of years and then trajan so, it's likely that the temple of Trajan that Dr. Thomas is talking about here that was erected was within the time that Pergamum actually saw this letter delivered to them. So, during the time of Trajan, the temple was erected in his honor and it earned the city the title Neokoros, which means it was a temple warden. And it was the first city of all the cities in Asia Minor to get that title. Ephesus would get that title as well. Smyrna would gain that title, but not before Pergamum. So it marked the city's great privilege of rendering even the most menial service to the God who had taken up residence there. Compared to all the surrounding cities, Caesar worship was the most intense here in Pergamum. In other cities, a Christian might be in danger only on one day a year when a pinch of incense had to be burned in worship of the emperor but in Pergamum Christians were in danger every day of the year for the same reason. Also in Pergamum there was the development of a massive library. Its collection rivaled that of the renowned library in Alexandria and according to one scholar its Start At its start, the library depended on papyrus material imported from Egypt. And Egypt was the only place where you could get papyrus, the papyrus plant. It was grown in large enough quantities where they could make this papyrus, where they could record books and then house them. But in Pergamum, they began to develop a new kind of writing material. Pergamum developed this new writing material manufactured from animal skins and they called it parchment. Have you heard of that? And parchment became the new writing material. It began to last longer and they began to record their books and store them in a library here in the city of Pergamum. In fact, the word parchment comes from the word Pergamum. But then they heard about it in Egypt and Egypt stopped Uh, selling any papyrus at all because they didn't want to aid and abet this library becoming bigger than theirs. Jealousy existed even back then, didn't it? In fact, some say that the library in Pergamum gained around 200,000 volumes, which is just unbelievable. Uh, In in terms of books today, that might not seem like a lot, but in the ancient world, to have 200,000 volumes in one place was amazing. Interestingly enough, Later, that library in Pergamum became a gift from the Caesar to Cleopatra, who took it back to Alexandria, if you can only imagine the rivalry that existed there. The city of Pergamum is located about 65 miles north of Smyrna, and Smyrna was 40 miles further north of Ephesus, and it was inland about 15 miles from the coast. And so it was a good distance from this wonderful city of Ephesus that was likely the 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 most intense city of the region, but Pergamum was the capital. And we have no idea when Christianity began in this city. Likely it was the same time around when Paul and his third missionary journey had come to Ephesus and spread the gospel, and it began to spread throughout the region. But not only was this city a city who housed Caesar worship at its epicenter, it was also a center point for some of the most prominent temples to the Roman and Greek gods. In fact, the great altar of Zeus, the Savior, was found in this city. Remains of the foundation you can still see today. We walked beside the remains of this great altar of Zeus, the Savior, and a a, a reproduction of this altar has been made, and you can see it in the Museum in Berlin, they have a whole museum dedicated to Pergamum in, museum, in in Berlin in that museum. In fact, that altar was so large it would likely just barely fit inside this room. That's how large this altar was and it was in the form of a throne. Sacrifices were offered on this altar to Zeus the Savior 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. In addition to that altar to Zeus, the Savior, were the temples dedicated to Athena, which was just above it. And then even above that was a temple that just skyrocketed into the the sky on the greatest center point of the city. And the highest place of the city was was another temple dedicated to Trajan. Our family has stood at the the base of the reconstruction of that temple. That temple to Trajan, it is a magnificent sight to see. There is a massive amphitheater in this city and it cascades down the hill. It's marvelous to see how they put an amphitheater on the side of a a hill. One mile west of the Acropolis where you'll find the, the altar to Zeus and Trajan's temple, you'll find also another massive temple offered to Asclepius. And Asclepius was the god of healing, and people who had any kind of infirmity or any kind of weakness whatsoever would make their way to the temple of Asclepius, who oftentimes was represented in the form of a serpent. And they would come and they would worship there and try to seek healing for any kind of malady. You had a sore on your arm, you had something on your leg, you had any body part. You would bring some terracotta form of that body part and offer it to Asclepias and worship at that temple and try to find healing for it. They were dominated by a desire to be healed of any and every kind of physical malady. There are also many other temples just scattered around Scattered throughout this little city of Pergamum, the church in this city was largely faithful from what we discern here, but it was beginning to struggle struggle with a within a segment of their members who likely were trying to manage the pressure of being in the capital city devoted to the worship of Caesar and trying to maintain faithfulness to Jesus and just stay afloat at the same time what should they keep in mind i mean caesar caesar demanded that you call him lord jesus said he was the only lord And as we heard last time when we talked about Polycarp, and you remember he was being led off and even a Roman officer was begging Polycarp. Do you understand they're going to kill you? What is it going to harm you just to say the words, Caesar is Lord? I mean, you can still be Christian and just say the words and not mean them in your heart, right? And then you could could live. And he wouldn't do it. It's what this church is faced with. Who do you keep in mind? Not Caesar, but the one who has the sharp two-edged sword coming from his mouth. Well, what is this a reference to? Well, once again, we see Jesus referring to himself at the beginning of this letter with an image that John saw of him in the original vision in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 16, you see that original image Out of his mouth came a sharp two edged sword, and here it's reiterated again. And for this church, this letter begins with this image, and it actually concludes with this image because he warns them, I'm going to come back to you and wage war against you with the sword of my mouth. So if it's at the beginning and the end of this letter, that must be the emphasis of the letter. He's the judge. And he's coming. And you want to make sure that your loyalty is found to him and to no other. This image is one of Christ's final return also, isn't it? In Revelation 19 is, we'll, is where we'll see again this image of Christ coming with the sharp two-edged sword. Chapter 19, verse 15 from his mouth when he returns from his mouth comes a sharp sword and listen to this this is interesting so that with it he may strike down the nations the unbelieving nations what does it mean if he is picturing himself with the image of the sharp two-edged sword and he's coming to a church to make war against the church. But at the end of the book, he comes to make war against the nations. What's he saying about this church? If you continue down this road of compromise, you're no different than the unbelieving nations. And I'm coming to make war against them. You see it in verse 21 of Revelation 19 as well the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh and Jesus warns the church in Pergamum that coming when I return could be the destruction of your very church everything about your church might be wiped out when I return it's an image of ultimate judgment from Jesus who's going to come back and he's going to use his very word the words of scripture to be the standard by which this church will be evaluated as to whether or not they believe and it's it's the picture is of a long large broadsword whose intention in battle was immediate and violent execution not a short sword but one that was long sharp on two edge that could cut in any direction. God's word has often been referred to like that. Not only in these several occasions, we see it in the book of Revelation, but even in Hebrews chapter four, verse 12, that text that you've likely memorized before that reminds you of the piercing nature of God's word. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any what? Two-edged sword. And what does that two-edged sword of the word do? It pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So God's word exposes us for who we really are and everything we think and all the reasonings of our heart are laid open by the word and he can do that not only with an individual conscience but he'll do that to the deliberations of a church. The motivations of a congregation to do what they do or not do what they choose not to do. So for the city of Pergamum, this is very significant. Because why does compromise come? When you're tempted to compromise, why does it come? Well, likely because of fear. That's why compromise comes. It comes because of fear. The fear of losing influence. The fear of suffering. You don't want to suffer, so compromise so you don't suffer. Compromise comes because of the fear of loss of something that you value greatly. Maybe your rights, maybe your property. You value freedom, so you compromise so you can keep it. Fear drives compromise. When you fear losing freedom, what do you do? You compromise what you have to do to keep it. You'll start holding loosely to something that's getting in the way of maintaining what you fear losing. So you'll begin to accept what you think will help you keep what you most fear losing. Or you'll try to find a way to make both convictions work together. In Pergamum, the Roman capital of the province, the proconsul who lived there actually had what was called the power of the sword. What is that? The ability to use capital punishment. There in Pergamum, the capital city, the power of the sword was in the hand of the Roman leader. And they all knew it in that city. They all knew it. And every day it was put on, the, their life was on the line, either Caesar is Lord or Jesus is Lord. Which one? Can't you imagine someone's going to say, well, I can say the words and not mean them. I can, I can nod the head to his authority because Caesar doesn't compromise on that if you're not his friend you are his enemy so every day they're faced with it who's going to be Lord because Caesar has the power of the sword so who should you keep in mind the one who has the sharp two-edged sword that comes from his mouth in final ultimate eternal judgment not just temporal judgment you can see how they would be tempted to compromise. Rome was open at times to adopting other religions into its system. You know, they might have allowed Christianity to exist if only Christianity would say, Jesus is one of the gods. That's the kind of culture they lived in. A culture where the leaders would not tolerate anything less than full-throated affirmation and the only way to avoid the sword of Rome was what we call syncretism. You know what syncretism is? It's melding two religions together, taking elements of different religions and putting them together so that both can equally exist and you don't upset everything. You syncretize them. I think the only way for us to avoid syncretism in our worship That is our devotion to Christ, our loyalty to him. The only way for us to avoid syncretism is if we keep in mind who's coming to judge us. The one whose word, the scripture alone, will be the sole standard of evaluation and judgment. If we would just keep that in mind and what he says in mind and he is coming and eternity is on the line... You might avoid syncretism there. When the fear of eternal loss is greater than the fear of temporal loss, you'll hold on to what will last forever. So you have to keep the ultimate judge in mind if you want to avoid melding Christianity with the culture. That's the first principle, to avoid the pitfall of cultural compromise. You've got to keep the ultimate judge in mind. The second principle in avoiding the pitfall of cultural compromise in a Christian congregation comes in verse 13. And that is to remember the faithful among the faithless. Remember the faithful among the faithless. Look at verse 13. This one who has the sharp two-edged sword who is coming in ultimate judgment says this, I know where you dwell. Where Satan's throne is and you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. It's good that Jesus says this. They face this possibility of compromise every single day and Jesus says I know what you're going through. I know what you face. I know the pressure day in and day out. In fact, I know where you live. You live where Satan's throne is. You say, well, what does that refer to? Well, he doesn't necessarily tell us, but just knowing the city of Pergamon, you don't have to be too precise. It's the capital city of the region. It's the throne of the Roman Empire in that region. In it, it was the centerpiece. It was the warden of the temple that belonged to the Caesar and his worship, the first city ever given that honor. Obviously, this is the seat of Roman power, Roman worship, thus the, the throne of Satan's worship. But put all those other altars that we talked about on top of this and how much they were dedicated to the worship of these other gods, having some of the most large, magnanimous structures to the worship of these other, other gods, obviously this city was the throne room of Caesar. Maybe that throne to, that altar to Zeus that was in the form of the throne is in his mind. And Jesus knows it. I know you're there. I I know the pressure to compromise. But he not only knows where they live, he knows that they've been faithful. For the most part, this church has been radically faithful. He says, I know that you hold fast my name, I know that you hold fast my faith. You haven't denied my faith. Now that term, hold fast, we've seen before, it is a word that at times means to arrest in a violent way. So it's not just I'm, I'm holding on to something so as not to lose it. I'm holding on to something so I don't lose my life. I let go of this it's all lost so I'm holding on with a grip that you've got to just pry every finger loose with all of your might that's how hard I'm holding on you've held on to my name now that would be significant in a city known for the worship of the Caesar there were many who simply would not say Caesar is Lord they would say Jesus is Lord and they never minimized saying the name of Jesus which there's a lot of pressure to do today isn't there Oh, be religious, be spiritual, Don't just, but don't relegate it to Jesus. He's such a divisive figure, have you noticed? And he says, I know you're where Satan's throne is and you won't deny my name. You wear it proudly, you say it loudly, you hold fast as if it means everything to you and you've not denied my faith. That is what it means to believe in him. You haven't syncretized belief in Rome and belief in Christ. You haven't done that. In fact, they so held on to faith. Faith alone in Jesus alone. He's the way, the truth, the life. There's no way that you get to the Father but by him. They believed that for the most part. They even had an example in their church A man named Antipas, even in the days of Antipas, we don't know anything about Antipas. There's no other mention of him throughout the New Testament. You can't find records of him in church history, really, but he's mentioned here. So they knew about Antipas. And sometime in their past, maybe it was the recent past, Christianity hadn't existed very long in that city, they knew about Antipas. And Antipas was known, and Jesus calls him here, my witness, my faithful one. Antipas was likely one, perhaps when the city was being marked as a place to worship the Caesar, he's he's one of the first to say, Jesus is Lord, bring what you will. My faithful one, he wouldn't budge. His allegiance to Jesus was so clear, so unmixed with the culture, he actually stood out and people recognized him for it. He was Jesus' witness, that is, he likely publicly testified to a singular loyalty to Jesus and he was radically faithful. He opposed the worship of health at the altar of Asclepius. He refused to burn sacrifices at the altar that proclaimed Zeus to be the savior He likely would not say Caesar is Lord at the towering temple of Trajan. He opposed what the political capital city demanded that he affirm. He would not nod his head to Caesar. What did he get for it? He was killed. Rome made an example out of him. You want to deny Rome? This is what you get. And Jesus says, that's right, that's what you get. Look to him. He did not deny my name, did not deny the faith, and he was killed. Look to him. Evidently, this entire church knew his testimony. And Jesus is as, it's like he's saying, do you remember him? Think about him. In the midst of all of these unfaithful people, think about someone like Antipas. Think about what he risked his life for. What did Antipas define his life by? So friends, there's a lot of things that we're challenged with today. There's a lot of things that our culture is pushing on us. And I, we have really felt it in the last few years, haven't we? Especially in relationship to powers like government authorities. And it's been a real struggle to walk the fine line of Romans 13 and be subject to the governing authorities over you. I, I think it's been hard, don't you? And, but what helps us to clarify how we need to live in such times that call us to, to challenge us in a time of compromise, what is going to define our life? When, when we give up something, when we fight for something, when we're willing to put something on the line, we're saying, this is what will define me. What's going to define you? Now, you might have convictions that oppose vaccination mandates. Just for an example. I've just pulled that out of thin air. <laughs> Maybe you've got a conviction that, that you can, conv- convictionally, you oppose things like higher taxes, you're, you're against that. See, someone is. <laughs> if it's on the ballot, I'm, I'm voting against that. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be someone who's always against that. Okay? Rights to assemble. It might be something. I mean, there's all kinds of things, aren't there? At the end of the day, what do you want to be known for in your sacrifice? What do you want to be known for? I don't think you want to be known for I don't think you want to define your life by I I died to oppose vaccination mandates I died and gave my life up for no higher taxes Hmm. I think at the end of the day what you want to be known for if you're going to give up your life is you want to be called by Jesus this is my faithful witness who would not deny my faith and friends there's a difference between that and some of the other convictions we might have we don't define christianity by conservative politics we don't if you do be careful because they'll sell us out real quick so be careful don't let your life be defined by that let your life only be defined by i'm faithful to jesus And I don't want the sword that comes from his mouth to devour us, but to affirm us. I think that's what helps us. That's what helps us. And we need examples like that, that remind us of what that looks like. The Bible's full of them, aren't is Isn't it? Daniel and his three friends, you want an example of not compromising for the sake of the pure, singular worship of God? And living your life and dying defined by loyalty to Yahweh alone? Daniel and his three friends. Stephen stood and boldly proclaimed that Jesus Christ was Lord. If he wasn't so bold, maybe they wouldn't have stoned him. But he singularly stood to die for that. And they stoned him. John the Baptist would go in front of Herod and proclaimed the righteousness of the scriptures to Herod, who should have been faithful to the covenant promises because he was the king over the Jews, and he wasn't. And John the Baptist lost his head over that. Paul embraced the chains and the eventual martyrdom because Jesus was Lord to him, and none other would be. But if you really need another example, isn't the most powerful one we have is our own Lord? Virtually every apostle was martyred for their witness. John himself, when he's writing this and recording it, he's on the island of Patmos because of his faithful witness to Christ. You ever read through a book like Fox's Book of Martyrs? You have a copy of that? Just just start reading through and you'll begin to see example after example of what does singular loyalty to Christ without compromise look like? Read read the diaries of and the books that record the life and the, the martyrdom of Jim Elliot. You see someone who is ready to put it all on the line so he could be known. And we remember him not because of his personal convictions, but because of his loyalty to Christ. A lot of Christian biographies, if you read them, and they're written well, they show you that kind of singular loyalty. They might show you the battle that goes on and how they went through the battle and came out on the other side and they were faithful. And you know what? We need to be reminded of that because when you're in the midst of the possibility of compromising, you tend to forget the radical examples and you're trying just to manage what does it look like for me right here and now in the midst of this. And you can get a group of people around you and say, you know, it's okay if you don't do Or if you do it'll be all right we won't reject you here but what will the judge who comes with the sword what will he say and we need remember to remember people and witnesses that were radically loyal you might be one of those examples i'm not sure that any of those guys that i just mentioned that I, I don't know if they got up in the morning and said, you know, I think I'd like to be an example of martyrdom today just to encourage the rest of you. And that might not be you either. You're not going to get up in the morning and think, you know what, I think I'll, I'll go out and be a martyr today. Or I'll be ostracized in my family just, just for the sake of helping the rest of my church see faithfulness. But you might be ordained by God to be that. And so you're going to be challenged in your families and in your workplace and in your neighborhoods and every other context what does loyalty to Christ look like? And you know what? It might not all go quote unquote well for you in this here and now moment. But the coming judge will reward rather than devour. And your testimony might be the very testimony that your church needs to see and hear to say, you know what? Jesus is more valuable than this compromise is. Maybe. Maybe. So we need to remember and keep in mind the faithful people in the midst of all the unfaithfulness that goes on. Let's look at a third principle for churches avoiding the pitfall of cultural compromise. It's found in verses 14 to 15, beware of harmonizing Christianity with culture. We've talked about it and alluded to it, but now we're gonna look at it more specifically. Beware of harmonizing Christianity with the culture. It's found in verses 14 and 15. Look at those verses but I have a few things against you. So you are faithful and you've had faithful people, but I have a few things against you because you have there, and I love this word, this one word, some, not all, thank the Lord, but there are some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So, You also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. What is going on here? This is a very strong word. The word but at the very beginning of the sentence is the strongest way you can make a contrast between what he's just said and what he's about to say. So you've got some faithful people but full stop. You better stop and look. There are some in your midst that you're not dealing with. They're compromising and they're caving. They have the teaching that is in accordance with Balaam, who was teaching Balak to put a stumbling block in front of Israel. And I have this against you. I have a few things against you, and the few things are likely the some, the people. Now, what is this teaching of Balaam? Well, the teaching of Balaam... We learn about back in Numbers chapter 22. You might be familiar with it. You can turn there if you'd like and follow along just for a moment just to get an an ear and an eye on what was going on. Numbers chapter 22 is where it begins. In verse one of Numbers 22, it says, Then the sons of Israel journeyed and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan opposite Jericho. So they've left Egypt and they're headed towards the land that God had promised Abraham 400 and plus years ago before this, and they're headed toward that land of promise. And so now they're in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan opposite Jericho, so they're not far from the land of promise. Verse two says, now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. That is, just before they got here, Israel had devoured the Amorites by God's hand. So Moab was in great fear. Now Balak, just to... Make it clear, he's the king of Moab. Moab was in great fear because of the people, for they were numerous, and Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, now this horde will lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of Moab at that time. So he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Baor, at Pethor, which is near the river, in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, a people came out of Egypt. Behold, they cover the surface of the land, and they're living opposite me. Now, therefore, please come and curse this people for me. Since they're too mighty for me, perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land for I know that he whom you bless is blessed and he whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand and they came to Balaam and repeated Balak's words to him. So the king comes to the prophet and he has a lot of money and he says, I want to buy your curse on this people. And you know how this goes if you've read it from chapter 22 all the way through chapter 24. Balak keeps bringing more money, giving it to Balaam. And Balaam is standing on the top of the mountain looking over Israel down below. And he starts to pronounce the curse and what comes out of his mouth? Blessing. So Yahweh takes over his vocal cords. And he opens his mouth and blessing just comes out. And Balak's like, I didn't pay you to do that. He's like, well, you're going to have to pay me again. That's how false teaching works, isn't it? Yeah. And so he brings more money and more blessing comes out. So it doesn't work. And so Balak is just absolutely beside himself frustrated because he can't get God to curse this people so that he can easily overcome them. That's chapters 22, 23, 24. But look at chapter 25. 24 ends with a final blessing over Israel. But notice how chapter 25 begins. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of who? Moab. The very people that were trying to buy the curse against them. Now, Israel had no idea what was going on in the mountain above them. They had no idea that curses were trying to be brought down on them. They're just moving towards the land. But at some point... They encounter the Moabites and they intermingle with them. Verse 2 says, they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor and the Lord, Yahweh, was angry against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and Execute them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel, this is unbelievable. One of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in public, like a public marriage ceremony as if it were, in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. All these people had been killed for intermingling with the harlots out of Moab and this guy has a public wedding ceremony and pitches his marriage tent right in front of the tent of meeting and brings a Moabite woman in. In verse 7, when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through the body, so the plague of the sons of Israel was checked. Those who died by the plague were 24,000. I want to point something out here. When Israel took on the daughters of Moab. They were not rejecting the worship of Yahweh at the same time. They were invited by the Moabites to come in and join them and they kept Yahweh and brought with it the Moabite religion. Why? I bet they were afraid. Here's the Moabites who rule this land. We're trying to get to the promised land you know, if we, if we join forces, if we make an alliance, if we, if we invite the blessing of their gods and we have the blessing and promise of our God, we'll be successful and we'll get free passage. What did they do? Syncretism. Syncretism. They began to worship the gods of the Moabites, which included sexual immorality. Immorality is many times connected with idolatry throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It's how you invited the pleasure of the gods as you engaged in immoral acts with priestesses that were devoted to the gods. And that's what Israel was doing. They weren't abandoning Yahweh completely. They were just adding more to it to make them safe. To make it easy. To stay alive. To survive. Or maybe they thought, hey, maybe we could influence them. Where did this come from? Where did this come from? We'll turn to Numbers 31, just a few pages over. Numbers 31. Look at verse 16. Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of who? Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, so the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. What was going on? Balaam never could curse the people. So he said, Balak, I've got a different idea. I can't get Yahweh to bring a a curse through me, just blessings. But if you want to get them, go down and see if you can join with them and see if they can join with you. Get them to compromise. And that'll bring Yahweh's curse on them, which it did. That whole matter of joining with Moab in idolatrous worship was Balaam's idea that he gave to Balak. And it worked. It worked. In fact, Jesus says back in Revelation 2 that Balaam kept teaching Balak. It's like it was an ongoing thing. (laughs) <laughs> you can only imagine. Yeah, I'll take your money, and he blesses. I'll take your money, and he blesses. And all the time he's like, I'll take your money, but there's a better way. I'll take your money, and I'll try it, but there's a different way. He kept on teaching Balak. If you want to get these people, I've got an idea. So he kept on teaching Balak to put a stumbling block. Now, a stumbling block is a really important word in the New Testament. It's the Greek word scandalon, from which we get scandalous, Put a on in front of them, something that would trip them up. And a on is not something that just makes you trip, but you keep your feet. A on is something that makes you trip and fall and you don't get up from it. It's fatal. It's fatal. Put a stumbling block in front of them so that they fatally fell in front of the Lord. Sacrificing these things to idols and the immorality that went in front of it, it was just wholesale abandonment of what God had called them to do. Write the Ten Commandments. You're going to have how many gods in front of me? There is no syncretism allowed in the worship of God. You, there's no safe passage by mixing Christianity and the culture. There's no way that you, you can put your arms around both and you always going to say, wisdom. That was good thinking. Just stay alive. Maybe you'll, maybe you'll be a better influence on them if you'll just be like them a little bit. There's none of that. So someone or some people in the church in Pergamum were teaching the teaching of Balaam. Well, what is that? It's not that the teaching of Balaam had lasted from Numbers 22 all the way up to the the time of Pergamum. No, it was like that. And likely it's these people noted in verse 15 to be the Nicolaitans because they are like the teachers of Balaam. So the Nicolaitans likely... And we saw them back in the church in Ephesus, back in chapter 2, verse 6. They were mentioned there. The Nicolaitans were trying to get people in the churches to just take on a little bit of secularism. Take on a little bit of the culture. Make a safe path. Dwell together in unity with the people and you can maintain your religion and you don't have to put your life on the line. You don't have to sacrifice everything. You'll be okay. That's the Nicolaitans. That's really interesting, in Ephesus, back there, you remember that church, they would not tolerate the Nicolaitans. No way are we going to compromise. And yet Jesus says, I'm going to come against you too, because you have lost your love. So you're uncompromising, but you're hateful. This church, they're compromising with the Nicolaitans, and they're going to lose their church too, because Christ isn't going to tolerate that kind of compromise. This is fascinating. How interesting to see this at work in the church today. An attempt to be compatible with the culture, not not just adversaries. We don't wanna pitch ourselves as adversaries. And listen, this this is not a sermon that says, be hateful to people. That's the way you keep against compromise. Hate the culture. Hate them. Be mean, be mean-spirited, be antagonistic, be unkind. No, that doesn't represent Christianity the way Christ says to represent Christianity. But we're not called to try to join forces with the belief systems of the culture. We're not supposed to do that. You can't mix them. Friends, if you try to take Eastern religion And you say, I'm going to take the parts of that that don't seem to run against Christianity. I'm going to take parts of Eastern religion and I'm going to mix it with parts of Christianity, and we'll come up with a way that that satisfies us, that helps us. You're on really, really thin ice. Really thin ice. You say, well, you know, for evangelistic purposes, we need to make sure that what we're saying we advocate and believe doesn't make us look like idiots. I was reading an article this this past week where a well-known, very evangelical individual was saying, Christians need to abandon a view of a literal six-day creation in Genesis for evangelistic purposes with the rest of the world who knows that the evolutionary idea is truth. And we could maybe have a more credible witness if we would just abandon the idiocy, the illogical positions. (laughs) It doesn't stop with just things like that, does it? We see it coming again. There are some within the evangelical world saying, you know, you need to reject this really strict view of inerrancy, that the Bible is completely inerrant. The Bible never intended itself to be inerrant. It's just inerrant and infallible on issues that have to do with faith in Christ. That's where it's true. And other things may not be accurate. It's ancient ideas and ancient philosophies that now we know better about. But what it says about salvation is true. Now that's the seedbed from where all liberalism has always come always but a rejection of inerrancy as a a strict inerrancy do you know what that begins to give way to so if the bible is only inerrant in things that get you into heaven eventually but it really doesn't govern the day-to-day life that's biblicism and you want to avoid that kind of idolatry of the bible we're told today and you actually hear this among some so-called evangelicals the bible was never intended to be used for day-to-day living So if I reject the Bible for that, what am I then going to do for everyday living? What am I going to believe? What am I going to take on? I'm going to begin to syncretize religion, right? One thing will make me okay with God and this will help me live my life right now. And I can begin to meld the thinkings of different philosophies together. And have you ever noticed that every major mainline denomination that has rejected inerrancy and has begun to adopt the other philosophies of the culture have always given way on issues of sexual ethics. Right. Haven't they? Because that kind of syncretism and idolatry of image in the culture and you, the Bible wasn't written to define everything, just how to get to know God. So then marriage is on the table and having children is on the table and sexuality is on the table and identity as a human being is now on the table because other philosophies will define that because we've rejected the Bible as the sufficient source for that. You see where it comes? All in the name of trying to get along and make our path and make it easy and not look like idiots. We can give Name after name, the Episcopalian church caved when they gave up on inerrancy. The Presbyterian church in the USA gave up on sexual ethics when they gave up inerrancy. The Methodist church has been in a massive battle over this very issue because of the authority of the scripture and how it defines the issues of life and they're caving on these issues. All in the name of maintaining social acceptance and intellectual credibility. When Jesus isn't viewed as the ultimate judge and you discredit all the fanatical witnesses of faithfulness as irrelevant you know what you begin to do? Harmonize. Harmonize. For whatever reason whatever motivation you harmonize and that is the teaching of Balaam. That's the teaching of Balaam. And it might not come under the name of the Nicolaitans today. It might have a thousand other names today but where you try to mix one world system and one religious system with christianity you're what it's fascinating christianity never dominates that have you noticed it always gives way it always is diminished it doesn't flourish in that let's look at a fourth principle in avoiding cultural compromises of church it's found in verse 16 consider christ's coming judgment Consider the coming judgment. This will keep you from compromise. He's coming. Verse 16 says, therefore, because you have some in your midst who hold to the teaching of Balaam in the form of the Nicolaitans who are trying to harmonize Christianity and pagan religion, therefore, repent. What does that mean? Stop. Stop syncretizing the religion. Stop melding the two together. And it's not just to stop, but you have to change the way you think. That's the way the word reads. The word repent is to change your mindset so that your behavior changes. You can't think that it's an okay path to meld the religions together and be okay with God. Stop thinking that way. So you stop living that way. Get singularly devoted to Christ. Be like Antipas, who was my faithful witness, who would not deny my faith, owned my name, repent in other words you need another antipas among you who won't compromise or you need a phinehas who when you do this syncretizing right in in the midst of the church someone stands up and says no no we can't do that based on this chapter and this verse and what this text says that's unfaithful to christ Well, what if you don't repent? He says, repent or else I am coming to you quickly. Now, some say because of the quickly, this means he's coming in some temporal way against this church right then and there. I don't think that's what he's referring to. I think this is referring to the second coming. This is the term that is used most often in the book of Revelation to refer to the second coming and it's used several times even with this adverb, to come quickly, meaning the coming of the Lord is coming soon, we're always to live with this idea that the coming of the Lord is imminent because that imminency breeds holiness. It breeds a fear of the Lord that says he could come at any time in his return and in his judgment. And we know this refers to the second coming because he then says, I will make war against them with what? the sword of my mouth, which is a reference to Revelation 19 and the second coming. So he's saying, I'm going to come in my final coming and judge you. You say, well, he's going to judge a church that existed 2,000 years ago? Yes. You do understand that in all of what happens, in all of the many things that happen in the coming of Christ, one of those events is that every church is going to be evaluated for how they did their ministry. For example... Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 Paul warns the Corinthian church that that was fraught with problems fraught with problems of trying to syncretize the wisdom of the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ and he tells them God's going to judge you for that he's going to evaluate you he says in chapter 3 verse 10 according to the grace of God which was given to me like a wise master builder that's Paul's ministry of laying a foundation the wise master builder the architectone the one who lays down the foundation that's what God called him to do I laid a foundation that foundation was Christ and then he says another another church leader has come and he's building on that foundation and he says but each man must be careful every leader everyone building the church must be careful how he builds it Notice verse 12, 1 Corinthians 3. If any man builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. How will it become evident? Because the day will show it. What's the day? It's the day of the Lord. It's the day of Christ's coming. It's when he returns. It will reveal how did you build the church? And how will the day come? Because it's to be revealed with fire. Fire. That's why he uses these illustrations. Wood, hay, straw, what, does that ha- what, what happens to that in fire? So it's not eternal. It doesn't last. So if you build the church based on what is tied to this culture, what happens to it when Christ comes? If the whole church is built on what the culture accepts, what happens to it eternally? Vaporized. Gold, precious stones. What happens to that in the fire? Purified. Lasts. Resilient. When Jesus says, I'm coming, that's what he has in mind. My day is going to reveal your church's ministry. And what happens if everything that we did was vaporized as non eternal? (laughs) I'm coming with the sword of my mouth. My word is the standard. Period. Not my word plus other ideas on top of it. My word alone. You want to keep the church from capitulating to compromise with the culture, you keep in mind how you build the church now because Christ is coming in judgment. Number five, this is one we've seen over and over so we don't have to take much time with it, but it is a poignant one. The other principle in avoiding the pitfall of Christian compromise, pay attention to the scripture. Isn't that obvious? Pay attention to the scripture. You say, well, where do you get that? He who has an ear, verse 17, let him hear, what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Again, if you have an ear spiritually to hear, you have true faith, and you can hear what the Spirit is saying, you can pay attention to it. And notice, it's what the Spirit is saying. It's actually singular. It's not all the things the Spirit is saying. It's as if he has this singular message that he's given to all the churches. So all seven of these letters make up one message that he's giving to the churches about faithfulness to him. Listen to what I have said. Listen to what I'm saying in the word. Don't be really caught up in every other ideology while you're minimizing what the details of the Bible says. Be a biblicist. Pay attention to the details, not just the generalities. He's speaking to you. Pay attention. Let's finish with the sixth principle that helps us. Live now with future satisfaction in view. You want to avoid compromise with the culture? Live now with future satisfaction in view. Don't live for all your satisfaction to be now. If that's how you're living, just notice I keep trying to satisfy myself now. How frustrating is that? It's, it's never ending. You can't, you can't do it. You, you just can't suck on the sand of the culture and think that's going to be quenching my thirst. Right. It won't do it. So you live now with a future satisfaction in view. Where do I get that? Well, notice to him who overcomes, to the one who is the victor. The one who overcomes compromise. The one who doesn't give in to that. To him, I will give some of the hidden manna well what is that it's manna you say what's manna manna is what is that that's what it means that's what the word manna means what is that because when Israel saw it on the ground they said what is that and God said it's what is that manna eat it remember it was that wafer like honey tasting wafer that just seemed to show up every morning they go gather some and it would last the day just get what you need for the day Get a little more for the weekend. And God will provide for you every day. What, is, what was he trying to teach them? That man should not live by bread alone, but by God's word. He was trying to teach them, be dependent on me for your daily needs and your satisfaction, right? So what is the hidden manna? Well, interestingly, in Exodus 16, 33, Moses told Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generation. So where did they take the manna? They put it in the Ark of the Covenant, in the presence of God. Well what did the Ark represent? It represented God's presence among his people and not just that he was there with them but it was the promise that future blessing, the future of God's presence would be completely revealed. Remember, all of the the articles of the tabernacle were just pictures of a greater heavenly reality that was going to come when Messiah returned and that he would set up the kingdom and God would be the presence. So the manna, even to the ancient Israelites in the Ark of the Covenant, represented to them that God would always be their sustaining gift to them. He would always be their satisfaction. And interestingly, Jesus in John chapter 6, described himself as being the manna, almost as if the manna that existed in the jar was a symbol of the messianic time to come when God's presence would be with them. And Jesus says in John 6, I'm the Messiah, therefore I am that sustaining manna. John chapter 6, verse 31 The Jews said our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written he gave them bread out of heaven to eat and Jesus said to them truly truly I say to you it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven for the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world and they said to him Lord always give us this bread and Jesus said to him I am the bread I am the bread of life and he who comes to me What's the promise? Will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. You're trying to fill your satisfaction in this life now with what? He's like, I'm that. I'm that. Living in me is that. Verse 49 of John 6 Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died all that stuff that sustained them day to day the manna was just a picture of something to come right it sustained them in the here and now but it was a picture of something to come all your fathers were sustained but they died This is the bread that comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world of the world is my flesh. What does that mean? The hidden manna really is simply living in Christ. And I'll give you sustaining grace. I'll give you satisfaction for all eternity if you live in Christ. Stop trying to find your heart's settledness and satisfaction in anything other than loving loyalty to the Lord Jesus. But also, the promise is not just sustaining grace in satisfaction, but I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. And it's very difficult to know what that is, the white stone. There's not a lot of references in the Old Testament to something like this, but in the world of the the Pergamum people, in the Roman world, if you were a victor in the games, you would likely get uh, as a token of your victory, not only would you get the wreath, but the wreath would fade away at some point because it was made of these leaves you would get a stone a white stone with your name on it and this would be your ticket no more taxes you didn't have to pay taxes or you got all the benefits that came from winning the games you got this white stone oftentimes in the Roman government they would give bread to the people to satisfy them they would give free bread to people and the way you would go and collect the free fresh bread from the Roman government as they're buying your loyalty is they would give out stones, white stones as tokens with your name on it so you could bring it to the place and you could hand it to them and you would get the bread that would sustain you these two items coming together can you see that? the hidden manna and the stone what are you looking for to sustain you? I'm your ticket I'm your ticket and a new name, you say do we get a new name? well likely you do Isaiah 62 verse 2 says The nations will see the righteousness of the Messiah. The kings will see their glory and you will be called by a new name. You'll have a new name connected with the Messiah who has a new name. A name that represents him in all eternity in the messianic kingdom. Isaiah 65, 15, you will leave your name for a curse to my chosen ones and the Lord God will slay you but my servants will be called by another name. Revelation 3.12, he who overcomes, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he'll not go out from it anymore and I'll write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and I will write on him my new name. So the Messiah has a new name connected with the messianic kingdom that will satisfy us forever and we receive a new name in connection with him and his messianic rule over all things and he will be our satisfaction. He's your ticket to eternal satisfaction. So you can keep running after the things of this world and finding the frustration of never being satisfied and you want the applause of the culture and you're trying to make a middle road. But satisfaction comes when you live in Christ. And and I, I get it. That doesn't mean an absence of suffering right now. And you say, well, it doesn't seem all that satisfying right now. You don't live for the here and now. You live now for the greater satisfaction to come. That's hard for us. That's why we have credit cards, isn't it? We don't like later, we like now. We need to learn that lesson though, don't we? Compromise has been a challenge for the church from the very beginning. From the very beginning, you minimize your image of loyalty to Christ. Guess what you're gonna do? You're gonna maximize your image of loyalty to something else. It leads to compromise. Compromise, your one click off in compromise, it leads to the future to being way off base. and could mean the very corruption of our entire ministry. So what does that mean in practicality? Well, now it's for you to figure out, right? You have to think through that. Are there any ways that I am personally, are there ways that we as a congregation are trying to compromise with the culture in order to gain their affection, their image, their interest in a way that's actually eroding the edges of Christianity? And That can come in so many different ways in so many different ways over different seasons. It has to be the constant vigilant watch of the church so that we're not the church of cultural compromise. Let's pray together. Father, we pray for wisdom in applying this together. We pray that we would live for eternal faithfulness, eternal fruit and eternal satisfaction that's found in Christ. Not that there, we know, Lord, there's gonna be joys that we have and a rejoicing that we have in this world now, but we know the joy that is to come far outweighs, far surpasses all that we could have even now. So Lord, help us to abandon a pursuit of life that compromises with the philosophies of the world in such a way that it minimizes Christ or thinks that we can add add them alongside with him. He alone is the definition of our life. When we give up our life, we give up our life because we want his name to be seen. Instill this in our heart. And grant us grace as we unpack it together into what it will mean among us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.